Joshua chapter 5 is where we'll be today. If you want to go ahead and turn that direction. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to your word with humble expectancy and eagerness to hear from you. Lord, satisfy our hearts and our souls with the bread of life. Lord, mold us, shape us. Lord, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. So we come to feast on the bread of life this morning. Speak to us, Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen. It was in 1546 that Anne Askew was burned at the stake. She's a famous Protestant martyr. In her younger years, her, her brothers went off to Cambridge, and in Cam- at Cambridge they became acquainted with Protestant views. The government was still Catholic at this point, and she had a real advantage in that someone taught her to read. She learned to read at a young age, and so she loved to read her Bible, and her kind of conviction of life was, if it ain't in the Bible, you can get out of my presence, because the Bible says what the Bible says, and that's the way she was going to roll. Um, her husband eventually would leave her because of her Protestant views, because they didn't, she didn't conform to Catholicism, and she would be condemned to death. In London at the time, it was, it was illegal for a woman to be racked. Do you know what I mean by racked? Where they stretch out your body? But they, they racked her harshly. And while they're racking her, they're begging her to give up the other Christians. She had become kind of a high profile Protestant. She was kind of in the know. And so they were saying, tell us where they are. Tell us who they are. And they're stretching her body slowly out and out. Her, her body was so racked that all of her joints were totally out of place. And in Fox's book of martyrs, it tells us that she, um, she was unable to walk, and so they had to carry her to the stake that she was to be burned on. And then she couldn't hold herself up on the stake, so they had to chain her around her waist, and they chained her to the stake. But all the while, as they beg her to give up other Christians, other Protestants, as they beg her um, to surrender, she just marches towards her death with this kind of steady confidence. When she's on the stake, again, she's chained around her waist. Body's just torn into pieces. They're getting ready to burn her. Um, an official brings her a letter. It's a, it's a pardon. If you'll deny your views now, you don't have to go to the flame. She doesn't even open the letter. She's no thanks. And, and goes to her death with, again, confidence and peace. Now there's a church tradition, a mar- tradition of martyrdom, in particular Christians facing hardship, trial, persecution, even death with peace in their souls. Now, that tradition began at the cross of Christ, where the scripture says that Jesus was led to the slaughter like a sheep who opened not his mouth. That that Jesus went to his own death with kind of a steady persistence. I was reminded last night about, I don't know, 3.30 a.m., because you know I don't sleep. I really would like to have been sleeping. I really would have. But I was reminded last night of a text from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of the most prophetic psalms, um, totally about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a psalm that opens with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And from the psalm start to finish, it really depicts the crucifixion of Jesus and even prophesies the resurrection and conquering of the Messiah. And I was stuck by a line in Psalm 22 as I was trying to sleep that I want to read to you really quickly. I'll start in verse 9 and I'll read you through verse 21. David, this is a psalm of David. He writes, Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. 
Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. That was the line stuck in my head. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. I mean, he can see and into his flesh. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing. They cast lots. Of course, they do this with Jesus' garments. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Now, this was a very popular psalm, and we know that in the day, Jesus in his life, he would have sung this psalm. And some scholars suggest, and and I think it may be so, that on the cross, it's, it may be that Jesus is obviously quoting Psalm 22, but he even could have been singing Psalm 22. And so when he says, my Lord, my Lord, why have thou forsaken me? It could have been a singing to the melody of Psalm 22 that he would have sang even from his childhood. And when, when it says, they pierced my hands and pierced my feet, and then it says, my mouth is dry, I'm parched. And some believe that's where Jesus says, I thirst. It's this quite prophetic picture of Jesus going to the cross and That line, I'm surrounded by great bulls of Bashan. And then the closing with verse 21. From the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. We see all through scripture this kind of testimony of men and women of God facing death. Cruel death and and harassment and punishment and persecution. But facing it with confidence in their soul. It's not, hear me. It's not that the believer is exempt from having to face fear. Jesus faces fear. But the believer believer is exempt from being captured by fear. I'll face fear, but fear cannot grip my soul. David wrote in Psalm 23, you know, just the psalm after. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. While I'm surrounded... When my enemies encamp me, when they drool at the mouth, ready to pounce upon me, you prepare a table before me. Charles Spurgeon said this, When a soldier is in the presence of his enemies, if he eats at all, he snatches a hasty meal. In a way, he hastens to the fight. But observe, thou preparest a table... Just as a servant does when he, when she unfolds the cloth and displays the ornaments of the feast on an ordinary peaceful occasion. Nothing is hurried. No, nothing is in confusion. No disturbance. The enemy is at the door and yet God prepares a table. And the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. So David wrote and Spurgeon commented that in the life of the believer, some will come for your throat. But the Christian, while his enemy is beating down his door, is not inside biting his nails and plotting and planning. The Christian is inside seated at the table of the Lord, feasting before the God who prepares a table before them. Now as we turn to Joshua chapter 5, what we'll find is Israel feasting in the wilderness. And the principle that I'd like to try to drive home today is this. We overcome fear by feasting. And I'll explain that for you as we go. 
Joshua chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now there's so much packed in these just few lines of scripture that I'll take a whole Sunday to expound it. I don't think I can scratch the surface of all that's here. What we've read so far is this. Moses has passed away. At Moses' passing, Joshua rises to leadership. Now Moses was told that he would not be allowed to enter the promised land because of his sin, and he died in the wilderness along with all of Israel. And so the generation left that's living, they're the sons of the rebellious generation, but they are now called to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. Problem being that the time of the year, it's springtime, the Jordan River has flooded all along the banks. There's no bridge, there's no rope, there's no boats, but Israel is now called to get across the river. Now what we read so far was that God parted the Jordan River the same way that he parted the Red Sea, saying to Israel, the same way that Moses led you out of bondage, I'm now leading you in to the promised land. And so the Jordan River in the time of flooding becomes totally dry, and Israel walks across. Now when Israel walks across, immediately their minds are set on Jericho. Now, coming into the promised land, there are, there are giants in the land, and Israel's called to drive out the Canaanites. And so, in their minds, they're set on the battles that they're soon to have. But before they even move, God begins to talk to them about worship. So remember the first thing God says is, wait, don't rush ahead. I want you to go and get 12 stones out of the Jordan River, and these are going to be stones of memorial. And what I want you to do is to set these stones up so that when your kids ask you, what do these stones mean, you'll tell them. God delivered us. He led us across the Jordan River supernaturally. So God began to talk to Israel first about remembrance. Second, God says to Israel, I want you to circumcise all your men. Now remember we talked about last week that that's really an illogical thing to say in the natural because what just happened is they crossed the Jordan River, right? And, and now the Canaanites, the Amorites, are, are nervous. The Canaanites and the Amorites knew that Israel was encamped on the other side of the Jordan River, but they knew that the Jordan River had created a natural barrier. There was no way for Israel to cross the river, not until at least the summer when the river began to dry up. And so they had this safety, the Jordan River. But now the river became dry supernaturally, and the people of Israel walked across, their feet dry, and the Amorites and the Canaanites began to bite their nails. They're nervous. The scripture says their hearts melt within them like wax. And so Israel has an opportunity. They have the element of surprise. They can rush the, Jer- the Jericho walls. They can, they can try to capitalize on the fear of Jericho. The other problem is, again, that Jericho is hiding behind walls, but they're camped in an open plain. And so they can either attack or they can be left here in the open plain to be attacked. Now they're finding themselves in a sticky position. The last thing you want to do in this position is circumcise all your men. Right? Because all of the military men, they're not able to fight. They're not able to defend. They're going to lay on their backs in their tents and yell across at their neighbor and say, How you feeling over there, big dog? How you recovering? Right? So God puts them in this place of vulnerability. And what God says, again, is worship before warfare. Covenant before battle. Belonging. You belong to me. That's your strength, not your military strategy, not your intellect. Not your skills. Your covenant with me is your strength. So Israel obeys. 
Now where we picked up today is in part three of worship before battle. Again, first being remembrance, second being covenant, the third part being feasting, celebrating the Passover. Today we read that four days after the crossing, Israel began to gather preparations to celebrate the Passover. First, remember again that they're camped in the plains outside of Jericho. And so Jericho is a walled city, a heavily walled city, where all of the commerce happens, where the markets are, where people live. And, but outside of the city, where, where the farms were, where the produce was, where the livestock were. And so there were farmers and people who lived in the plains who stored their produce, and they would bring their produce into the city to sell. And there was commerce, and there was um, markets. You know, Imagine how that happens. Now, what scholars believe, and what seems really obvious, is that when Israel crossed the river, you need to know that there are at least 2 million people at this point. You're not talking about 10,000 Israel. I just want 2 million, right? Like, that's a big deal. Imagine being a farmer in the plains of Gilgal, and 2 million people start mushering on your farm, where do you do? You get your butt to the walled city, right? And so the, what happened is as Israel came across the Jordan, all of the farmers keeping livestock, storing their produce, they all fled to the city Jericho. And so now God tells Israel, you know, remember that God loves timing. Isn't it funny timing that when they cross the Jordan, it's time to celebrate the Passover. God tells Israel to celebrate the Passover. And what they find is grain in the barns, barley stored up, and fresh produce to be had. Now to you, you go, oh, that's great. Good for them. But you understand that these men and women were born in the wilderness. They've eaten nothing but manna for 40 years. Now manna is beautiful. It was God's sustenance and, and strength. Manna kept them breathing, kept them walking. You know, some of you are health nuts and you say you should, you should eat to live, not live to eat. Well, the Bible disagrees with you. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing. But, but manna was eating to live, if you will. Manna was sustenance and strength. But it was not, it was not feasting. What Israel was promised, their entire lives now, these people are told, one day you're gonna enter a land flowing with milk and honey. One day you're gonna eat of olives and pomegranates, and there'll be olive oil and, and plenty of food to go around. One day you're gonna experience the freshness and the vibrancy of fresh produce. Today you eat manna. Flaky bread, it's sweet, it's beautiful, it sustains you. But the day is coming when you'll no longer eat this bread morning and evening. The day is coming when you'll have fresh food. And now Israel crosses the Jordan. Again, had manna their whole lives. And they go, oh shoot, they left all the food. So they start to scrounge the barns. Pull the grain, pull the barley, prepare the meal. And there's a great celebration that's happening. And notice that the scripture says that the day after Passover, there was no manna, and manna stopped. What an important day in the life of Israel, one that we skim over really quickly. The day that manna stopped. The day when they transitioned from being sustained to prospering in the land. The day they transitioned from God sustaining them in the wilderness to experiencing abundance in the promise. And, and, you can't overemphasize that that transition takes place, Passover. So prophetically, what that says to us in the New Testament is we transition from just being sustained to living in life and life abundantly as we celebrate the shed blood of the Lamb. So from there, let's think quickly about Passover. You, you know Passover, but let me just remind you really quick what's happening because I want you to have a full picture of what's now taking place in the plains of Gilgal as, as Jericho is pent up behind her thick walls. 
Remember that Passover is the feast that Moses established the night before the Israelites would be led across the Red Sea. And you remember how the feast went. Every family should kill a lamb. They should take the blood and put the blood on their doorpost. And what was going to happen is that the angel of judgment was going to pass through all of the land. And every house that did not have blood on the doorpost, the firstborn would die. Okay, so the night before Israel, they all kill a lamb. They have a feast. They all take the, the father of the home takes blood and puts it on the doorpost. And he marks this house as, as, as being a house that's atoned for by the blood of an innocent victim. A substitute. And so the night comes and goes and all the Israelites wake up. What do they wake up to? Wailing and weeping and mourning because every Egyptian home has lost a firstborn. Imagine the sounds of the mothers, right? Just totally, totally weeping and, and shouting and there's fasting and there's frustration. And, the, and then you go out and the livestock are dead too. And, and there's this great frustration. Now imagine yourself being an Israelite mother and father and going, thank God my babies are alive, right? You've protected us. And the, the celebration is, 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 is really n- not just God loves us so he passes us over. The celebration is God has mercy on us because of the blood of a sacrifice. Right? And so Israel, at this point, they were partaking of the, the kind of thematic thing that happens Old Testament and New Testament where Adam and Eve, they, they're clothed with fig leaves because they've sinned and God doesn't strike them dead, but he clothes them with animal skin, right? He kills an animal to clothe them. And then you just kind of work your way through to Abraham and um, Isaac and God saying you have to sacrifice Isaac and he raises up his knife and an angel of the Lord says, stop, there's a ram caught in the thicket. God will provide. And we just kind of find this thematic thing happening. So when we get to Isaiah 53, he tells us that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be the chastisement which brought us peace. And by his stripes, we would be healed. When we find ourselves in Zechariah, we read that the Messiah would be wounded on his hands and his feet. We read Psalm 22 saying that he would be wounded. His garments would be cast aside. And so from start to finish, the Old Testament is about atonement and mercy Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So Israel, in the Passover, they're celebrating that judgment passes them over because of blood. Atonement. In other words, they escape the strong hand of Egypt. Because of the blood. And in a very real way, um, I, I said to the church earlier, as modern Westerns, we hate these themes of the, of the scripture, but that's your problem, not mine. They're there, so take that. Um, in a very real way, as Israel celebrated the Passover, they were declaring to Egypt, we're going to receive mercy, you're going to receive judgment. And as Israel's camped outside of the Jordan, they're de- or over across the Jordan, they're declaring the same thing to Jericho. You sit in there and sharpen your knives. We're celebrating the judgment of God that's getting ready to come on you. And, and we, we don't escape the judgment of God because we're more righteous than you. We're escaping the judgment of God because of atonement. Because of the blood of the Lamb. Now there are some other themes that are happening in the Passover that I'll just swipe by really quickly. Exodus chapter 12 verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, Moses said to Israel. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. 
Moses instructs the people that as they celebrate the Passover, they need to be dressed. They need to have their shoes on, their belt tied, staff in hand. What is the imagery there? You're leaving. You're moving forward. And the type of food they were to eat, they weren't to have leavened bread. Bread takes a while to leaven. It's almost as if some, some commentators will say, as if God tells them to eat ancient fast food. It's a fast food festival. Right? Just, just, just roast the grain and eat it. Unleavened bread. And as, as the Israelites are eating with their clothes on, their shoes on, they're eating fast food, what they're saying is, we are moving forward. Because of the blood that's causing God to pass us over. So now, picture this. Israel is camped in Gilgal in the, in the plains. Jericho is just a shot away. And they've got their clothes on, their shoes on, their staffs in hand. They're eating fast food. And they are in a very real way, in their hearts, declaring in the Spirit, Jericho's walls are falling. Judgment is coming. But God will have mercy on us because he's given us a covenant of blood. Now let me tie this together for you and we'll, we'll work toward the conclusion. It's important to remember here that Israel is being watched. Okay, and so the Jordan created a nice barrier for the, the, those in Jericho and, and the Amorites. It was a nice natural barrier that said that there's no way Israel's getting in. But do you remember that once they got in, the Jordan closed again? So, so uh, what was a natural barrier to keep them out is now a natural barrier that's going to keep their butts in. And so they're, they're walled in with the river on their back. And to their front, they're facing enemies. So imagine Jericho sending out spies and watching from their walls, saying, what in the world are the Israelites doing? Right? Someone, someone's locked away in a room strategizing. Someone's locked away in the room in Jericho trying to figure out what these people are up to and how we could conquer them. Should we sweep down on them in the valley? But as the enemies watch, they say, they're not sharpening their swords. They're preparing the table. They're not plotting and training their young men. They're singing. Why in the world aren't they scared of us? Right? Like, aren't we terrifying? What are you doing down there feasting on our food, by the way? There is no one in Israel biting their nails, anxious, hidden away, crying out, please move God, please move God, don't let us be destroyed. They are confidently sit, sitting at the table of the Lord, feasting on the Passover, celebrating the goodness of God towards them. And all of the enemies wonder, how is it that these people have confidence and here again, we find a very, very beautiful and profound biblical principle that David highlights in Psalm 23, 5. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. In the face of great trial, in the face of great persecution, in the face of great hardship, when fear is knocking on my door, my soul sits at the table of the Lord and finds peace and joy and life. Fear has the opportunity to take me, but as she tries to take me, God just sets the table coolly, calmly, and collectively. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 15. This is the story of Elisha's life, you'll remember. When the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are, against, are with them. 
Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open the eyes of this man so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. So Elisha has a moment where he could participate in the panic of his young men. But in his moment of panic, rather than panic, he prays. And he says, God, open their eyes. When their eyes are open, there are chariots of fire surrounding their enemies. And as their enemies sweep down upon them, God causes a great blindness to fall on all of them. And Elisha stands in a moment of trial with peace in his soul. We are called to feast in the face of our enemies. To feast in the moment of trial. To remember, hear me church, you remember the joy of your salvation. The joy of your belonging. What does it mean to feast in the face of being persecuted? It means to say, you can spit in my face, you can cut me down with your words, you can belittle me, have your best shot, but I am still a son or daughter of the kingdom of heaven, and he shall never leave me, nor forsake me, and he will sustain and see me through, and you can take my breath, but by God, you cannot take my life. I feast on all that Christ Jesus is. In the face of those who attempt to tear us down. Now, obviously we're not, we're not participating in conquest around here. So we have to ask the question, who are our enemies? What is our enemy? One, obviously our enemy is hell. The demonic realm. The New Testament paints very, very clearly that there is a spiritual realm. There's, there's demonic warfare that the church wages in war. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with principalities and powers. So, so as believers, when hell tries to push back against us, we are not given permission to hit our, our pillows with tears in our eyes and, and scream and wail. We are given the commission to remember what Jesus said when he says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. And so, culture can try to squelch the church. In many, in many regions today, nations will say, Christianity is illegal, we'll find you, throw you in jail. If you participate, you can't, you can't snuff out the church. The church always thrives in the hour of persecution. Let up and we'll find that there are thousands of believers in China. Imagine that. And so as we get this pressure, we need to make sure that we don't bow and tremble. Remembering again that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We do wrestle with demonic principalities, but there are certainly times where people are operating under the influence of demonic principalities and pressuring and pushing on the church. In the face of that kind of persecution and pressuring, you are called to laugh. You are called to remember the joy of your salvation. You are called to be people of peace, to worship louder, to love each other harder. You are not, you are not to let the terror of our modern society steal the joy of salvation from your home. Alright, everything in the news cycle right now is telling you, you better be afraid. Death is knocking at your door. You're going to get sick. Everything in modern society is telling you, you should tremble. Scripture tells you to take the cup. Take the bread. Remember the broken body that was for you. Take this. 
the blood of the new covenant. And as you take the bread and the cup and you celebrate the Passover, the New Testament fulfillment of Passover, we are saying to our souls, oh, everything may be going to hell in a handbasket. But there's a day coming quickly when he'll return for me. And my heart belongs to him. And even in hardship and trial, when it feels like everything's falling apart, he's just steadily preparing the meal for me. And you can scream and shout and spit on me and I feast. I don't let fear grip me. I feast in the presence of the Lord. And of course, scripture presents that the last enemy of the church is death itself. And I want you guys to hear me. I know this is like a really strange preaching point, but it's a very biblical preaching point. The way that we die matters. The way that we face death matters. We are not afraid of the day when our breath leaves our lungs. Because death itself has been conquered by Christ Jesus. I am resurrected by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in me. And so... I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle or shame anyone, but I am saying this. Don't you dare sit around in your home biting your nails about COVID killing you. If we get sick, we will pray for healing and believe for healing and press on for healing. But remember what the friends of Daniel said. We believe he'll deliver us, but even if not, we won't worship you. We won't bow. We won't serve. And so we need to, we need to embrace a posture that says, look, we're aware. We're going to be smart. We're not going to be stupid. But we're not going to cower in fear because even death can't steal from me. And when we lose loved ones in the past and we lose loved ones in the future, we need to keep reminding each other, death does not take from the church. She has been squelched. The head of the serpent has been crushed by the heel of Christ Jesus. Even death can't steal from us. So when we lay on our deathbeds or we face some awful diagnosis, we pray God heal, God heal, and we believe for healing. But even if healing doesn't come, you are called to lay there with a smile on your face and to tell your kids and your grandkids, the blood of Christ has washed me. The body of Christ was broken for me. I am happy in God even in this hour. Seth, if you'll get ready to come for us, we'll get ready to close. So what do we find here? We find Israel camped on the plains, surrounded by enemies, backed up against the river, and rather than sharpening their knives and doing some push-ups, that's what I'd be doing, get your butt in shape, boy, rather than preparing to fight, they are feasting. And as they feast, they are declaring to their hearts and they are declaring to their enemies, we belong to God Because of the blood of the Lamb. So when John the Baptist hits the scene and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. We are reminded that we have peace in God because Christ Jesus went to the cross for us. There's blood on my doorpost. I only know mercy. Every promise of God for me is yes and amen. And some, you know, in the church history, some will be martyred and some will be persecuted. And I pray that we live lives of of peace and that our children grow up in peace. But even if not, we cannot lose our joy of salvation. Lift up your head. Lift up your head, man. Stop letting terror grip you.
feast on all that God is. Shut your door, lock the door, sit your butt down in the closet and begin to thank him for the cross. Begin to invite the Holy Spirit to anoint your head with oil until your cup overflows, David said. We feast in the face of fear. Go ahead and stand to your feet. Altar team, if you guys want to slide into place. The first thing I want to say is this, is that the obvious implication of everything we just said is that if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never come and prayed, Lord, I need the blood of Jesus to forgive me and to wash me, the scriptural presentation is that you will experience judgment at death. What the Bible says is that all who come to God in Jesus Christ's name and ask for forgiveness based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ will receive forgiveness and mercy. And so in the kingdom of heaven, there are only, or at the judgment seat, I'll say it that way. At the judgment seat, there are only two types of people, guilty and forgiven. There is no such thing as earning your way into the kingdom of heaven. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you're here today and you're unsure about where you'll spend eternity, we say to you this morning, come to the altar, invite Christ to wash you in his blood, ask for mercy from God, and you can leave here sure that heaven is your home, that you belong to him because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone. Your only other option is judgment. And I'm sorry that the TV preachers don't want you to know that, but that's the clear presentation of the scripture. God says, judgment or mercy, you choose. So this morning, I'm appealing with you, come to mercy. Today is the day of salvation. Don't leave this room unsure of where you'll spend eternity. Tomorrow is not promised. Have forgiveness today. Stop worrying about what the people around you are going to do. I'm asking you to come and respond. Two, if you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you are gripped by terror, maybe it hasn't totally consumed your heart, but you've had some sleepless nights. I want to ask you to come to the altar today. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would just wash over you and drive out all anxiety and fear, that the voice of fear would be silenced in Jesus' name. Three, if you're struggling with sickness in any way, we'd love to pray that the Holy Spirit would heal you. There were a few words of knowledge that came forth. Words of knowledge, biblically speaking, is a spiritual gift where, where God kind of nudges us to pray for certain things. There were a couple things highlighted that you might be struggling with tooth pain, pain in the inner ear, that someone's struggling with a continual issue with their left hand. If any of those things are you, we want to ask you to come and receive prayer. We believe God is highlighting those things. So let's begin to worship. The altars are open. Don't hesitate. I want you to come now. I don't want you to look around. I don't want you to see what everyone else is doing. If you need prayer for to receive salvation, to get free from fear or any sickness, I want you to come right now. Come on, congregation, worship with us. Come on, get hungry this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, bring healing in this house in Jesus' name.
So Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the blood of Christ that atones for our sins, that washes us, that invites us into the mercy of God. And right now, in Jesus' name, I ask for a blessing of peace over every home represented. I pray that the voice of terror, the voice of fear, of anxiety will be squelched as we celebrate our belonging to you because of Jesus' blood as communion with your spirit becomes rich in our homes. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Every saint says amen. Amen. Well, hey, the altars will stay open. And so if you need ministry, you don't got to run out of here. Um, But you're officially dismissed. We love you. We're so glad that you worshiped with us this morning. No.